This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That means 20 years of Texas art coverage, 20 years of publishing writing from across the state, and 20 years of showing the world all Texas has to offer. Since our publication is a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to help support our coverage, you can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining donor by visiting glasstar.com forward slash donate. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And today we're talking, well, we have a multi-pronged conversation that kind of all ties in together. First, we're going to be talking about the uh, Kusama pumpkin sculpture that was swept away in a typhoon in Japan recently. If you haven't seen this video, it's, I don't know, Christina, is it sad? Is it funny? Is it just an example of climate change uh, ob- objectively i guess it's not funny at all subjectively for me because i just don't care about kusama and the pumpkins i thought it was hilarious but that's i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't make that my official stance you know i'm not happy to see art destroyed but uh <laughs> no never well yeah and it's basically i mean but also the way that mother nature is throwing this you know like reinforced plastic sculpture around like a toy is I mean, it's absurd. Um, it's a great, it's a great metaphor for what's really going on. I mean, you know, this is we're just not we're not going to be able to stand up to nature. That's all there is to it. It doesn't matter what our egos are, what we're putting out there. It's just it's just not going to last. Well, and that leads into the second part of this conversation, which is going to be about um, climate change and art. And well, it's climate change and art, but also we're going to be talking about um, maybe one of the things that will survive climate change in art, which is the underwater sculpture gardens that have been, they've been, they've been popping up really in the last like 10 years, but a, a, a new one has gotten a lot of press recently that opened, I don't know, it opened really recently, but it got a lot of press at the beginning of August. Yeah. It's, it's outside of Cyprus or it's Cyprus. Um, so yeah. So in other words, we'll talk about kind of what artists, I mean, obviously right now there are a lot of urgent uh, issues in the world that artists are um, addressing to some degree through their art or to a great degree through their art. But when we talk about climate change and the way it's infiltrating art, and we you know we see tr- a tremendous amount of art now about border violence, to some degree about immigration and mass displacement, to some degree about struggles for resources. I was thinking about the Mitch Epstein or Epstein set of photographs of Damon Carter recently, but there's a lot of it. And all of these things are really about climate change. If you think about it, border violence, immigration resources, you know, these will be the increasingly urgent, uh, topics that artists will either will or won't grapple with. Uh, and then there are these weird ways that artists, you know, artists can either do the super fine art version of it, like Oliver Eliasson, and he can actually ship, blocks of ice from Greenland into this middle of cities. 
which is very ambitious. And I mean, I guess we could all sort of at this point, also, these conversations are constantly changing, the goalposts are moving. So what we would maybe say about Offer Alliance's piece now, years later, is that that's a bad use of carbon offset, because shipping that work is <laughs> insanely irresponsible, right? That's what we would say. So you're stealing ice from Greenland to and shipping it using yeah, that's there's there's a whole set of politics. There's there's a dissertation of politics wrapped up in that idea alone. All right, but to give you again example, I mean that's just an example of how quickly uh, concepts and arguments are shifting. You know, again, and goalposts are, are shifting to where even just making artwork that about climate change that requires <laughs> uh, the burning of energy is controversial. But artists, all, obviously, they're, they are addressing this stuff. And then we've got people like this guy who does the sculpture water parks. And I don't know if it's art necessarily, but it's a much more direct uh, action um, that is meant to be mitigating climate change. And that's different from what Oliver, you know, Oliver Elias, and if anything, you could say that he was actually <laughs> contributing to climate change uh, by eroding the, you know, Greenland and shipping work or shipping ice. But you would say that this guy is actually, even though he's not making art art, as we think of art art, although those definitions are changing too, uh, he's putting stuff under water that, you know, the sculptures themselves of trees and people, not spectacular by any stretch. You can see it if you scuba dive or if you snorkel, they're about 30 feet down. Um, Christina, before we get fully into this, let's go over the pumpkin. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, let's go over the pumpkin. Let's go over the pumpkin. Because, I mean, there were multiple elements around this story that kind of got at the art handler that's deep inside of me. <laughs> Apparently, so this this pumpkin, um, it's like an Instagram attraction. It's actually been installed um, in, let me see, it was installed in 1994 on uh, the Japanese island of Naoshima. Um, which is an island that's known for its art museums. And it's, uh, of course, I mean, probably since it was first installed, but uh, especially since Instagram has come up and Kusama's gotten more and more popular, it's become this, like, Instagram attraction, right? Because it's at the end of this pier overlooking the water. There's no land in sight. It's just kind of this beautiful, pristine object in the middle of nothing. Um, Very Japanese. Mm Mm-hmm. And there, there are a couple of videos. We'll put them in the reading notes for this podcast on uh, on Glastar's website. But there were there there was a video that someone had posted to Instagram of what they normally do because they normally move this pumpkin. It's like a reinforced. It's probably like a fiberglass and plastic. I would imagine um, hollow pumpkin uh, with you know it's yellow. It has the black dots on it. It's grade A Kusama. Um, and they normally like just kind of pick it up off its little perch and move it and like haul it, you know, probably to the more towards the center of the island on a cart whenever something like this rolls in. But uh, earlier this week on uh, Monday, I believe it was, a typhoon rolled in. It was like you know eighty mile per hour winds, and it just kind of gradually dislodged this sculpture from its bearings. Um, and the video that I, I first found the video on, I think it was art handler mag that posted it because of course, because of course it was art handler mag that posted yeah. it on Instagram. Um, if you don't know what art handler, what art handler mag is, you might want to listen to Mayan William Saradet's podcast about art 
meme Instagram handles. Um, but Art Handler Mag posted it, and it was just, you know, this pumpkin thrashing around in waves and rain and wind, and it just it just looks absurd, frankly, because it looks like a little toy that's, like, being jostled in a bathtub. I mean, for me, look, I don't, again, I don't wish harm to art, and I don't wish harm to Kusama's art. I think Kusama's work in particular has just obviously become the, you know, the Instagram, social media art of our generation. It's tiresome. It just feels like people don't dig very deep. But of course, it's just entertainment. So here's an artwork that has just become kind of really superficial entertainment. It's fine. I mean, I just sound like the old man screaming at the kids to get off the lawn, but it's like, you know, I mean, I I do think there's something sort of... um, righteous and when nature corrects um our (laughs) foibles in this way and uh i do feel sorry for the art handlers who actually said were quoted in japan as saying they just did not have time to get out there to get to rescue that pumpkin (laughs) yeah i I feel for them in that respect i don't want to i don't want the art handlers to suffer well i think kind of christina also just the paradox of this whole situation is the reason it got press is because it's kusama's pumpkin right if Mm -hmm. this was a sculpture of a of a hermit crab that was just sitting on the end of a dock that was washed away no one would be like oh no the sculpture of the you know it's just it it got press except except the artist that made the hermit crab of course very upset (laughs) Um, oh this video of it being thrown around is so Instagram friendly and is so popular because we're used to seeing the pumpkin on Instagram and because the pumpkin and the artist itself and themselves are like Instagram friendly. So it's just like, I see it as just this kind of, I guess catch 22 might be the right term. It's this catch 22 of absurdity and that it's popular. And then the video is popular, which makes the piece more popular, which, you know, it's just this like churning of, part disaster porn a little bit yeah i mean it's it's the perfect kind of dovetailing of different sort of instagrammable things it's husama yay it's you know it's visual art it's this giant storm so it's sort of like climate pornography or climate change pornography it's short enough to where it kind of doesn't you know challenge your adhd too much it's all the perfect stuff for instagram which actually Again, it's just one of these crazy things where it's like you are not there in the typhoon in the moment. You have no idea how this actually feels. You're just safely sitting on your couch watching a typhoon destroy a Kusama. We're so just blasé about this shit. I've got to say, and listen, almost, almost all of our art centers are in coastal regions. You know, it's not just this Kusama in Japan. And we're looking at climate change and all of the news now. It's like it's really shifting very quickly to climate change because there are, what, 90, 100 fires burning in the Pacific Northwest right now. Greece is on fire. You know, we're we're in so much trouble. And they've, they've recalculated everything and they've realized that the acceleration of climate change has happened much more quickly than we thought. So Houston, I, I was looking into, when we were doing this, I was looking into Houston flood mitigation plans, you know, at the MFAH and the Manil. But we can talk about the water park again. Uh, coastal water flooding, hurricanes, Cypress, putting stuff underwater that's not really meant to stay art, but is meant to somehow mitigate climate change by repopulating that part of the ocean 
with its wildlife, you know, these, when you put certain kind of pH neutral objects underwater, it attracts the fish and the coral reefs and everything starts to grow there again. So I know that this is his hope for his sculpture park. Yeah, the artist, Christina, that you're talking about, uh, Jason DeCarries Taylor, um, he's done a number of these underwater sculpture parks. Uh, like you said earlier, they're like pH neutral concrete. He apparently installs them down current or downstream from uh, like coral reefs. So the idea is that these pH neutral objects that are, you know, made for longevity will become the, the host for underwater life and coral reefs and kind of help revitalize, I suppose, um, some of these underwater environments. And, you know, you and I were talking before, um, before we started recording, the sculptures themselves don't look to be super amazing (laughs) in their form or their execution or, you know, I mean, maybe it's because they're underwater and they're supposed to grow coral and etc. But they very much remind me of the widely panned um, shipwreck of the what was it called? The shipwreck of the wonderful or whatever that Damien. Oh, Hirst Damien, show Damien was. Hirst. Yeah, yeah, Damien Hirst in Venice, the last finale. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, for those of you who may not know, Damien Hirst, and I think it was like 2017, um, did a show in Venice that was this collection of fake shipwrecked treasures that had been discovered it was everything from you know a sculpture of mickey mouse to um like medusa's head and he had they were they some of them were cast in bronze with like fake painted coral on them uh other ones or or, and some of them were also like cast in gold and precious like they had been rehabilitated it was this whole like Damien Hurst spending lots of money on production and pseudo duping people and creating a fake documentary also about people uncovering these from the sea. Um, But this anyway, this whole movement uh, or this whole kind of underwater sculpture park idea just very much reminds me of those and that it's like kind of more simple forms it's about what's happening on it. I don't know. And granted, of course, if I were scuba diving and underwater looking at these sculptures, it probably is kind of a magical experience. I don't know, man. <laughs> have you have you been scuba diving? I actually haven't ever been scuba diving, so I might be projecting. But I feel yeah. like it would kind of be cool. I don't know. Maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but I, I don't know. I feel like... Here's the deal. It's <laughs> uh-huh. the same. It's the age old argument. I mean, art really cannot compete with nature. It just can't. It just can't. It tries all the time and we all aspire to it. That's one of the reasons we love it so much, but it just doesn't quite get there. If you've ever been scuba diving or snorkeling in a really spectacular kind of coral reef environment, I can tell you that this one, I would just, I mean, I granted, I haven't been to this water park. I don't know how magical it would be. But I, I would imagine that compared to real scuba diving in a real ocean with real coral, <laughs> which I have done, which is spectacular. It really feels like you've been dropped onto another planet. I mean, you just really get the sense that you don't belong there and that you're trespassing. Um, but it is just insanely beautiful. And it's just, you know, you just are filled with this wonder. It becomes this very, you know transcendental experience i just i mean you look at these pictures the guardian will link it we'll put in the reading list the guardian piece 
this artist himself was in charge of this article and puts as many good pictures in it as possible. Do you really think that the artwork looks like something that if you were swimming around it, you'd be like, this is amazing. <laughs> Cause I would say no, no, I think it looks like, I think it looks, it's, it's, it's noble as an effort in terms of like trying to combat climate change and bringing people's attention to it. But I mean, it's, you know, We've said this a million times in Art Dirt when we talk about different things. I don't know what it is, but it's not art. It's fine, but it's not art. I, okay, I have a question for you. But uh, first, a quick word from one of today's Art Dirt sponsors. Today's podcast is sponsored in part by Texas Talks Art a series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. The talks feature curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. Tune in every Tuesday at noon central time for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout 2021. Register for upcoming artist talks and watch all of the past talks at texastalksart.org. And we're back. So, Christina, I have a question. So, you know, there's, especially recently, there's a lot of environmental art being made. I I think of things that, you know, I've either experienced or seen, like, lots of documentation of, uh, some pieces by Joan Jonas. Um, There was a piece uh, on... Oh, what was it? It was it was a seaweed, I believe, like a seaweed opera at the Galveston Artist Residency recently. Um, there's Anne Sprinkle and Beth uh, Stevenson's like eco-sexual movement. Um, that's all what I I think you would classify as like environmental art. That's pretty decent right yeah it's like and good got- in execution good in you know its message also trying to do some environmental work right we've got yeah we've got artists here and artists from i mean melchin's done some cool stuff henry sanchez has his ongoing project we've got people here who do climate who address climate stuff and and, and again increasingly i think this is going to become the urgent the urgent sort of moral message that artists will either take up or they won't it's going to be so undeniable in the next 20 years that I would think that there will be some artists who feel like they can't make art about really anything else. But uh, well, so go ahead. Where do you think these underwater sculpture parks fit in, like that categorization of environmental art? Because okay, if you say they're not art, they're sculptures, and they're actually doing. Or uh, allegedly, I don't know how successful they are. If you brought in a, a scientist to do a study, you know, it might be arguable. But their goal is to have real change and to reinvigorate reefs in these areas by providing, like, hosts for these organisms to grow on, right? So it's like they're doing real things rather than just preaching about it. So are they art? Are they not art? Are they, like this guy's environmental project like how do you how do you see them this one's difficult because without actually talking to the guy who made the work and his intention and how seriously he takes his own work as art versus an initiative to battle climate change i don't know i don't know the answer to that in this particular case i think that 
there's um, such a, a wide, we're going to be dealing, and we've been already been dealing with this for years, is this, these constantly changing definitions of what art is and what counts as art. You know, and we at Glass Tire have been going over these questions this whole time, and certainly you and I have had many conversations about it, and we've, we've had conversations about this kind of thing on Art Dirt before, even when we talk about electrical boxes, we're still trying to figure out what's art and what's design, or what's art and what's community art outreach? How is social practice art? Is it always art? Is it sometimes, is it just propaganda? Is it just politics? You know, um, it just kind of feels like civilization is unraveling. And I realize every generation says that, although most generations that are even, I mean, people who are even 80, 90, 100 years old are right now saying, wow, shit's really bad out there. So artists are having to deal with this the same way artists were you know, once upon a time forced to deal with World War Two, World War One, you know, in the West. Now it's global. I don't know. I don't I don't know anymore. And I'm as exhausted as anyone else in trying to make these definitions, you know, clear and straight and try to <laughs> let them move with the moving goalposts. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I feel like, you know, if this guy wasn't trying to make art and he was just trying to revitalize reefs he could do a lot more with a lot less effort <laughs> but the publicity that comes with this is pretty good is because it's art and because it's something you can like tour he may really be an environmentalist who has re- realized that by contextualizing this stuff as art he's going to get more publicity for it more support more people will pay attention to it and think about it talk about it and be aware of it, but I don't. I, or if he considers himself an artist who's just kind of hitched his wagon to the environmental movement, I don't know which one it is for him in particular. I mean, I've but, always said that the medium is, you know, at least seventy percent of your message. So if he's found the way to do this, you know, it. There's a TED talk, uh, like an eleven-minute TED talk by him, and I don't know if he was just a, you know a marine biologist trying to revitalize coral reefs if he would have gotten that TED talk. Probably not. (laughs) But exactly. And you know that there are people out there putting stuff in the ocean in order to revitalize coral reefs. That's happening a lot. They're just not doing it in the form of interesting or not very interesting trees and people. Yeah, I mean, in order to get more eyes and ears and hearts on a particular initiative, I can see why you would couch it as art. Uh, I mean, far be it from me to, you know, sit here again and shake my fist in the air and say, this isn't art. You know, I mean, at this point, it just feels like we are in the middle of a typhoon. Um, I suppose I might have more of a positive outlook (laughs) than you, though. Um, You know, I... Uh, one of the one of the hard problems to get around is the fact that you mentioned earlier that there are so many uh, of the major well just major centers not even art centers but just major centers that are on coasts because that's traditionally how it works with trade and with people coming in and with migration and all of that and I yeah cities mm-hmm. ports and cities and I feel like. <sighs> I mean, I feel like that's going to be just a constant renegotiation. Like, they're, they're, you know, one of the reasons that Galveston didn't become a larger city than it 
is now is because of the what was it the 1900 or the 1901 uh massive hurricane that just decimated it as a center and it's still you know it bounced back and it became what it is which is great but there's a reason it didn't become just it houston there's a reason that houston became houston and galveston didn't become houston in terms of size and in terms of industry and etc etc and it's because people saw the writing on the wall and that was 120 years ago um i don't know where we're meant to live and i don't know where we're meant to put our art um again i think that at this point probably the best attitude is to just keep your nose to the grindstone and do the best work you can pay attention to the artwork that's coming up around us and then also just let go of the fact that all this everything everything that we're looking at right now will be gone soon enough including us and all the artwork that we're looking at we just can't this isn't meant to last forever and ever. None of us, none of this is meant to last forever and ever. I do agree with you in the sense that I feel like museums and collectors, and I mean, I, I'm included in this, like, you know, we're all trying to preserve things that are ultimately in the grand course of life ephemeral. Like the fact that as old as the Met is and is trying to preserve so many objects at this point, like I, I can't believe that in a thousand years that, museums will have been able to fully fulfill their missions and i don't know what that means for the future and i i mean i won't be around a thousand years from now to see what that means but um i feel like there will just be drastic changes because art and museums and nonprofits and institutions i mean they already have to react to their external environment that's what good art and progressive institutions do so I don't even I don't know if the most climate controlled vault could stop a, a a Picasso's canvas from withering away in a thousand years. And that just might be the reality of it, that everything is kind of for the moment. And what I mean by that is not just for like the right now, but for, you know, Picasso was alive in the 1900s and it's for the 21st and 22nd century. And then after that, it's kind of, you know. <laughs> We're going to be looking at holy paintings on the wall because of just general age that happens. I've spent way too much of my life thinking of art as being so precious and the thing that needs to be most protected. And, you know, the older we get, the more our values change. And I'm looking at human life in a different way. And we're all, we've all been through so much shit over the last 18 months anyway. But, you know... I don't, I, I, I find great comfort in being able to just let go of that sense of trying to control, 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 um, preserve, preserve, preserve. I wish somebody out there, if anyone's listening to this and they have any sense of this, I know, I feel, I don't think I dreamed this, that the Metropolitan Museum of Art had been photographing its entire collection and sending these archives to some sort of bunker or underground location in Colorado so that if Manhattan floods or if there's a nuclear war or whatever, there's, there's super, super, super incredibly high resolution, you know, images and scans or whatever of every object at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that is preserved somewhere in the mountains of Colorado. Um, if anyone can speak to that, and I haven't been able to find reference to that again ever. And I've looked, I've Googled it a million times if anyone can find reference to that or any other museums that are doing similar things, I'd like to know about it. I mean, Brandon, it may just be that it's, you know, space aliens who find this stuff. 
yeah. 500 years from now. And they're like, wow, so there was something called the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They had some amazing things. I mean, or it lives on in that digital documentation. We have That's it. Yeah, we have That'll high quality it. reproductions of Demoiselle d'Avignon. And that's that's what it is. That's what it is now. I would think that with the polarization of wealth, if it continues to go the way it's going, I would think that a lot of nonprofit institutions that exist today will stop existing. They'll just go away. They'll turn into community centers and museums will be giant privately owned, you know, oligarch centers. You know, it'll be back to the Gilded Age and the robber barons and all that. You know, museums will be named after the billionaires who own them, and that'll be that. I mean, I could be wrong. Everything could unravel in the other direction, and there could be no billionaires because they're all going to go to the guillotine. But um, I'm telling you, man, everything's in the balance right now. <laughs> we are living in interesting times. Well, and with that, any final thoughts? Uh, I think that um, I think this is the next big thing in art, and it already has started, and um, I think that um, until the world either burns out or starts getting better, I think that this is going to be a major theme that we see in big and small exhibitions at the local level, the national, the international level. Some of it's going to be art. Some of it's going to be propaganda. Some of it is simply going to be messaging that is addressing a very real moral urgency, and you can all decide for yourselves as you encounter it. Yeah, I agree with that. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any thoughts, let us know. Other than that, um, art's happening right now all across Texas and probably wherever you're located as well. So, And underwater, evidently. And so, underwater. Go scuba some art. Go scuba some art. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Texas Talks Art, which is a series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. Each talk features curators and artists from Texas's leading cultural institutions and museums. Tune in every Tuesday at noon central time for these virtual talks, and they're happening all throughout 2021. I've attended a number of these talks virtually, and they've been fantastic. Some of the recent artists included in the talks include Benjamin McVeigh, Janelle Esparza, Tammy Rubin, Philip Pyle II, and many more. You can register for upcoming talks and watch past talks at texastalksart.org. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.